Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I hate it. Um, how's it going? It's going. Yeah. Get it through the semester, one day at a time. Try not yeah. to strangle my students. Yeah. How about you? Well, you know, baking a lot of pies. <laughs> what pie this time? Well, the most recent one I made, I was really just like using up all the leftover fruit that I had in my fridge. So it was like a combination of like apple, peach, and strawberry. It was actually pretty good. It reminds me of a pie that my my grandpa made. He used all the candy bars he had in the house left over from like Halloween. Oh my gosh. That it was amazing. so good, but it looked, so good. it looked like shit. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so you're eating it and it's just this melted brown goo. <laughs> I'll never forget this shit pie. <laughs> The shit pie. Aw, poor grandpa. <laughs> Trying to do a nice thing for you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it lives on in infamy. Yeah. Um, what else? I can't think of anything. <laughs> My mind is I blank. I haven't been up to anything. I made you a spell bottle. I'm cooking a roast in the other room right now. Mm, what kind of roast? Well, I'm going to make beef Manhattan again because it's like my comfort meal. It makes me feel better when I'm sad. Yeah. Um, So it'll be in there for another seven hours just cooking. Mm, Yum. I love a crock pot meal. It lasts so long when you live by yourself and you feed myself for like a whole week. Yeah, that's what I used to do when I was going to school. I would just, either that or I would get like a large pizza and I would have it for lunch and dinner the whole week. <laughs> uh-huh. I have definitely done that before. Because it's like, oh, I'm spending a lot of money right now. But if you average it across how many days I'm going to have to eat this. Yeah. It's like, what, twenty seven fifty or something with delivery, which I always got delivery because I'm a lazy ass, which is why I'm ordering one pizza for the week so Same. I don't have to cook <laughs> or do dishes. You don't have to do dishes either, which is... No, you just pitch it and it's gone. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about delivery food is mm-hmm. no mess, just yeah. gone. Yeah. This is our um, takeout podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a companion podcast <laughs> where we just talk about the takeout food that we like. <laughs> Me and the copious amounts of Mexican food that I order. Yeah, you single-handedly keeping changos in business. <laughs> yeah. They are getting through this pandemic, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Oh, I miss Changos. I'm still mad they changed their chips. Yeah. It was the best thing about them, and they changed them. <laughs> also, every time you got chips, they'd give you, like, a garbage bag full of them. Like, so many. <laughs> it really would. And, like, it's a brown bag, but it's one of those, like, monster-sized ones that you can put on your head, and they fill it, like, three-quarters of chips. Of yeah, they only leave enough room to fold it over. <laughs> so good. It is. <sighs> I'm really hungry now, and all I have to eat is a stupid ass protein shake, like an idiot. Anyway, mm, that's good. 
You probably you uh you probably could tell this, but this is the Saints and Witches podcast. And that's Sarah and I'm Liz. Yep, I'm a Catholic, she's a witch. We get along sometimes. Especially when we're discussing takeout food, I guess. Mm-hmm. Our shared passion. Our shared passion <laughs> of shangos. <laughs> <laughs> so good did i tell you that story about one time i went to changos before a literary reading and i got a gigantic margarita and i chugged the entire thing it was like 32 ounces and then i got to the library and i immediately threw up in the library bathroom (laughs) and it wasn't classic sarah (laughs) It wasn't even like, oh my god, I'm so drunk, I have to puke. My stomach was just like, no, we're not doing this. It was so full. We refuse to do this. Just, like, take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What a waste of money. And then Margarita made it all the way across town. (laughs) Just sloshing around in my stomach. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Oh, fun times. Good times. What the fuck are we talking about today? Um, I'm going to talk about Joan of Arc. Um, I'm going to talk about heresy in the medieval time period. And you figure out how that's connected. Okay. Well, it is connected very much Mm so. Um, Cool. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. I figured it was about time to talk about Joan of Arc. So here I am making it happen. Okay, let's just jump right in, because I have a lot to get to. Okay, Joan, or Jean, which is the French version, was born in France, obviously, during the Hundred Years' War, which is something that I see referenced all the time in my research, so much so that my eyes just sort of glide over it at this point. (laughs) Me in the Thirty Years' War, I'm just like, I don't whatever. (laughs) Whatever, who gives a shit? But... (laughs) well because usually it doesn't apply because my saints are like in convents in the middle of nowhere and so the war doesn't really apply to them but my witches are getting killed for other irrelevant reasons (laughs) for like the hailstorms or something Mm -hmm. but joan actually fought in the war so i was like damn i'm not really not really getting out of this one (laughs) so it's like i can't hand wave this history (laughs) (laughs) well uh, i'll probably find a way So um, I'm sure I will at some point. So basically, the Hundred Years' War was a series of smaller wars from 1337 to 1453 that were fought over the right to rule the kingdom of France. And it's typically divided into three periods. There's the Edwardian War, then the Caroline War, and then the Lancastrian War. We're mainly going to be talking about the Lancastrian War, but... um, I just thought I would give an overview of what happened um, in the first two phases of the war because <laughs> when I tried to skip ahead to the Lancastrian War, I had absolutely no fucking clue what was going on. Who are these people? <laughs> What's going on? No clue. So, um, okay, so at the time that the war started, the Kingdom of France was the largest kingdom in Western Europe. So this became one of the most notable conflicts of the Middle Ages. Five generations of kings fought in the war, 
And they were from essentially, it gets weird as we'll see, but essentially two dynasties, um, the English Plantagenets, along with the House of Lancaster, and on the other side, the French House of Valois. So what causes the war is this like large-scale instability in Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries, resulting from things like the Great Famine, the Black Plague, the Little Ice Age, the decline of the Holy Roman Empire, the Western Schism, all the things that we've talked about before on the podcast on like different episodes. Um, So the European population is like decimated from the plague. Um, People are starving. It seems like the end of the world, all these crazy storms, like you mentioned, like people being accused of witchcraft for them during the little ice age because of climate change. Um, It seems like the end of the world. And so these smaller dynasties, like the House of Lancaster and the House of Valois, become like more important, more influential almost than the empire, which throws off this really old balance in Europe. So things are weird. Nearly every European country is fighting internally, especially France. I think I read that like um, France fought like nine civil wars against itself. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know why I thought that was so funny. I'm sure it was terrible. I'm sure tons of people died. (laughs) But I can't get over how many civil wars it fought. (laughs) I'll kick my own ass. That's funny. Anyway, um, (laughs) all of these things combined all this 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 whole shit show is what historians call the crisis of the late middle ages so they were going through it um but more specifically there is tension between france and england that had existed since the countries became countries because um English royalty traced their lineage back to France because of the Norman conquest. So it was traditional for English kings to have like land and titles in France. And obviously that's something that the French monarchy (laughs) didn't care for. (laughs) The idea that like an English king could be recognized as like the supreme ruler in the country of France. Um, So they were trying to get rid of these little... um, these like areas of land, which they're mostly successful at, like little by little, until the province of Gascony is the only one that remains English. So then in 1328, Charles IV of France died with no heir. And French law forbade a woman, like say his daughter, or his wife, both of whom were perfectly qualified, but the law forbade them from being the supreme ruler of France. So his closest male relative was his nephew Edward III, who was English. But a council of French barons were like, we can't have that, we're not putting an English king on the French throne, and they gave the monarchy to Charles's cousin Philip, the Count of Valois. And Philip and the barons decided to finally take back Gascony from England. So 
Not only did they refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the English king, now they're just like rubbing it in England's face. They're like, we want this back. Goodbye. And so Edward's like, you know, I was prepared to let you have the throne, but now you're insulting me and now I'm going to fight you for the throne. So that is what causes the Hundred Years' War. I think it's actually a lesson in the dangers of the patriarchy. But anyway. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously, if his daughter was allowed to rule, none of this would have happened. (laughs) Anyway. So Edward and the English pretty much dominate the first phase of the war, hence the Edwardian phase. The English are killing it. Literally. (laughs) Sorry. Um, A detail that I like is that in the 1350s, they had to pause the fighting because the Black Death had killed so many soldiers that they, like, couldn't even fight anymore. (laughs) Couldn't have a war because there was no one to fight. (laughs) Ah, Good times. And then throughout this phase, the French and English sign a lot of treaties that they break like a year later. There's no lasting peace. Um, Another detail I liked was that on Easter Monday in the year 1360, the English were gearing up to sack this French city when a sudden freak hailstorm broke out and killed an estimated 1,200 English soldiers. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's it was like out of nowhere, like sunny day, boom, crazy hailstorm a thousand people are dead. Um, So that's what's known as Black Monday. Um, Shakespeare actually mentions Black Monday in The Merchant of Venice. French clergy said that that happened because the English had been going around looting the French countryside during Lent, and that was their punishment. (laughs) Um. My first thought when I read about it was that, like, okay, so who got accused of witchcraft for that? (laughs) Just some lady in some town way over yonder. Right, a poor old woman who's just, like, making stew, and they're like, you stirred that cauldron just like you made the storm happen. (laughs) Some bullshit, I don't know. like, I don't even know what's happening. (laughs) Are you people? (laughs) Exactly. I bet someone was accused. I didn't look it up, though. Um, Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, same. Either way, a week later, the French and English signed a treaty that led to the end of the Edwardian phase of the war. So in this treaty, Edward III renounced his claim to the French throne in exchange for the Duchy of Aquitaine. Peace lasted for nine years. Basically, the reason that war resumed was that we have two new rulers, The heir of Philip of France is Charles V, and the heir of Edward III is his son, who is also named Edward, and he is known as the Black Prince, which I had heard that term before, but I never knew who it actually was. Um, So the Black Prince is in debt, and he raises the taxes in Aquitaine, the duchy that his father gained through that treaty. And the the people in Aquitaine, the peasants and stuff, they're like, well, this fucking sucks. Like, it's only been nine years. They still consider themselves French people. And now their taxes are being raised by this English guy. So they complain to Charles V. And he's like, excuse me. I'm the only one that gets to mistreat my peasants. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Charles V is like, look, Edward, we need to have a meeting. Edward ignores his summons. And so Charles declares war. <sighs> anyway, France. Men. I know, men. Oh, my God. Like, you ignored my invite. <laughs> Therefore, everyone must die. Therefore, death. Um, yeah, you didn't listen when I was talking. <laughs> <laughs> So France dominates this phase of the war, mainly because the English rulers are either like sick, dying, or dead during it. Um, But anyway, the phase lasts from 1369 to 1389. During this time, the Western Schism begins, which fractures the papacy and sort of limits papal authority, which is another reason the war goes on forever. And if you're interested in learning more about the schism, I talked in more detail about it in episode two with Catherine of Siena. So this 20-year phase of war goes on until we have two new kings, the sons of the previous rulers, who are Charles VI of France and Richard II of England. And they make peace with each other. The peace lasts until 1415. So in 1415, the English king is Henry V. And he says, you know what? I am the rightful king of France. He stirs up that old drama again, just being greedy. He already has the English throne, but he wants the French one too. So he says, if you trace the line of succession through women instead of men, which is legal in England, but not in France, then he would be the successor of Edward III through his mother. So Henry V invades France and restarts the war all over again. (laughs) (laughs) So the French king is still Charles VI, and he's also known as Charles the Mad because he had a mental illness. Um, Not sure what it was, uh, but it said that he had psychotic episodes, maybe schizophrenia, not clear. Um, A lot of people had like syphilis and stuff. So many people had syphilis. That's so true. And syphilis literally eats your brain. Mm -hmm. It's the scariest disease that there ever could be. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going to think of him as the mad. I'm going to think of him as the disease written. Okay. (laughs) I'm not sure which is worse. (laughs) I think I would rather be the mad. (laughs) Charles the Fleabag. (laughs) So he has some issues. So his wife, Isabeau of Bavaria, basically ran the country, which I think is so fucking funny because she's doing all the important stuff she's basically ruling but she's not allowed to be like the ruler i don't know it's just funny to me um and she was greatly influenced by the duke of burgundy so i'll talk more about burgundy in a second because they're important so charles and isabeau's son is named charles super creative and he is the dauphin which is the name for the heir to the french throne He had four older brothers. They all died. So they all had that title of Dauphin, and then they just passed it along (laughs) till it got to Charles. Um, It also means dolphin, which I like. Not sure why, 
but it means dolphin. <laughs> he is the dolphin of France. Yep, exactly. So this is where things got confusing to me. Because it's easy, it was easy for my brain to remember that it's England versus France. But actually what it is, it's just all these little factions of English and French nobility. So two of those French factions are the Armagnac and the Burgundian factions. They're both initially against the English, but they're also against each other. <laughs> One of those civil wars <laughs> that France has. Um, so they're like vying for power. Um, and yeah, so they do fight a civil war against each other during the peace between the Caroline phase and the Lancastrian phase of the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> so they decided like... Um, one one major war isn't enough. We also have to have a little war on the side. Anyway, <clears throat> so when the war starts up again, the Duke of Burgundy meets with the Dauphin Charles. And at that meeting, the Dauphin's followers assassinate the Duke of Burgundy. Awkward. So the Duke's son forms an alliance with the English. And that's called the Anglo-Burgundian Alliance. So the Burgundians go from being in the king and queen's good graces to being forced to fight against them. And the Anglo-Burgundians force Charles the Mad to sign the Treaty of Troy, which states that Charles's daughter, Catherine of Valois, will be married to Henry V, and Henry will gain the throne, thus disinheriting the Dauphin Charles. So that happens. So when Henry V dies in 1422, his baby son, Henry VI, is crowned King of France. The Armagnacs don't recognize Henry VI as king. They're still loyal to the Dauphin Charles. Um, so the war keeps going. And of course, the English are holding many major French cities, including Paris and, importantly, the city of <laughs> which is not spelled like it sounds <laughs> and I'm sure I didn't pronounce it right but that's the city where the French kings are traditionally crowned so it's important <sighs> okay in 1428 the English are besieging the city of Orléans and it happens mainly through luck that the French managed to kill the English commander. So there's like a tiny bit of hope for France at the moment because they're not doing well overall. Okay, enter our girl, Joan. Yay. Let's talk about Joan. She was probably born in 1412. She doesn't even know when she was born. <laughs> apparently birth certificates were not a thing for peasants or maybe in the area or at the time not sure um she was illiterate uh she lived on her parents farm in eastern france and uh what was the village called domremy in eastern france and this was a remote area that was loyal to the dauphin charles despite being surrounded by Burgundian lands. So there were lots of conflicts that she witnessed growing up. Um, one time her village was burned. Her parents' names were Jacques and Isabel. In addition to farming, her father Jacques collected taxes and headed the local watch. One day, when Joan is 13 years old, so in probably around 1425, she receives her first vision. 
And this is how she later describes it. She says, quote, And came this voice at the hour of noon in the summertime in my father's garden. I heard the voice on the right-hand side towards the church, and rarely do I hear it without a brightness. It is usually a great light. The voice was sent to me by God, and after I had heard thrice this voice, I knew that it was the voice of an angel. So she describes hearing the voices of the Archangel Michael, as well as St. Catherine of Alexandria and St. Margaret of Antioch, both of whom we mentioned last time. Mm -hmm. Then she says, quote, this voice told me that I, Joan, must go away and that I must come to France and that my father must know nothing of my leaving. The voice told me that I should raise the siege laid to the city of Orléans. So this voice, these voices want her to go to Orléans to ensure that the Dauphin Charles can get to Rez for his coronation. And that was the sentence I was talking about. <laughs> I told Liz there was a sentence that I was dreading because I had to say three French words in one sentence. I did it. I am so proud of you. Thank you so much. I know you're being sarcastic. but No, I'm not. <laughs> Thank you. So that's what she has to do. And these visions happened two or three times a week after the first one. So she's kind of like tormented by them. And she keeps saying in response, no, I'm just a poor girl. I can't read. I can't ride a horse. I'm very small. I have no money. So you can imagine the amount of stress that I'm under. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, she's like, no, it's impossible. Can't do it. But the visions keep coming. So she finally decides that she can't ignore them anymore. And she goes to the next town over and petitions the garrison commander for an armed escort to take her to the French royal court at Chinon. And he's like, ew, no, who even are you? <laughs> uh, so she returns a couple months later. And this time she speaks to the commander's fellow soldiers trying to be a little sneaky, and she tells them, quote, I must be at the king's side. There will be no help for the kingdom if not from me. Although I would rather have remained spinning wool at my mother's side, yet I must go and I must do this thing, for my lord wills that I do so. So that convinces them to give her another audience with the commander. And during the second audience, she makes a prediction about the outcome of a battle several days before the messengers actually arrived to report the outcome. So at that point, the commander's like, fine, you can have an escort. So she cuts her hair and she wears men's clothing and she rides through hostile Burgundian territory with the escort to Chinon. She's probably 17 at this time. Don't know. Um, and Charles is 26 when they first meet. And he loves her. He's like blown away by her visions. She or he is convinced that she is on a mission from God. They get along really well. And at this time Charles's mother-in-law is planning a trip to bring aid to the French army at Orléans. So Joan asks if she can go with and they let her, which is weird. <laughs> But so, like, why did they let her? Well, this historian named Stephen Ritchie sort of explains why. Um, 
Okay, he says, after years of one humiliating defeat after another, both the military and civil leadership of France were demoralized and discredited. When the Dauphin Charles granted Joan's urgent request to be equipped for war and placed at the head of his army, his decision must have been based in large part on the knowledge that every orthodox, every rational opinion had been tried and had failed. Only a regime in the final straits of desperation would pay any heed to an illiterate farm girl who claimed that the voice of God was instructing her to take charge of her country's army and lead it to victory. Yikes. So, Joan fucking waltzes into battle, barely knows how to ride a horse. I don't know how she stayed on the horse. It's not like she had a bunch of training. Um, She's wearing some dude's ill-fitting armor. And she turns the battle into a religious conflict by claiming that God is on the side of the French. That's a tricky situation. Charles's advisors are concerned because unless it can be proven that she's not a heretic or a witch, then the other side could claim that it's actually the devil that's on the side of the French and not God. So Charles, to be safe, although he believes her, he orders a theological examination of Joan in April of 1429. The inquiry found her to be of, quote, irreproachable life, a good Christian, possessed of the virtues of humility, honesty, and simplicity. But they say she needed to be put to the test to determine with certainty whether or not her mission was of a divine nature. So basically, they were like, let's see if she can actually lift the siege, and then we'll decide if she's a witch or not. (laughs) The dudes there, the army dudes, are not fond of Joan at first, (laughs) which is understandable, I guess. They, um, (laughs) what I thought was so funny is they, like, don't tell her when they're going to have war councils. (laughs) but then the voices tell her so she shows up anyway (laughs) just knocks on the door like hello um my invitation must have got lost in the mail (laughs) it's me joan and so eventually she wins them over and they start to listen to her advice and she leads lots of charges with her banner, which will be important later. She loves her banner. Probably every painting of Joan of Arc, she's like holding a banner. Um, the troops start to believe that their mission is divinely inspired and they start having like remarkable success. They take back a bunch of forts from the English. They go on the offensive. Joan is killing it. She's like their angel. They're obsessed with her. And she leads the charges with her banner. They love it. In one battle, she's wounded by an arrow between her neck and shoulder, like in that part between the armor. But she just like has that thing yanked out and gets right back to it. Like she is a fucking badass. Um, she encourages the final assault against the English forces and they retreat from Orléans the following day, ending the siege. So she did it. So to the French, this is a sign that Joan is sent by God. To the Anglo-Burgundians, it's a sign that she's possessed by the devil. (laughs) Only two options. (laughs) Two options for women. (laughs) Sent by God, possessed by the devil. (laughs) 
what a tightrope. <laughs> Truly. Well, it's like we were talking about with Anne Boleyn, um, where it's like, oh, be flirty, but don't be a slut or we'll kill you. It's like, oh, yep. holy moly. <laughs> so historians note that the rumor of Joan being possessed by the devil wasn't just like a random rumor that the English started. They actually believed it for the most part because the alternative was like entertaining the idea that God was on the side of the French and was against them. (laughs) So I guess I could see it would be rather demoralizing. I think I would just give up and go home. (laughs) Either way, Joan is completely trusted by the French now, and she strategizes with the royal army, which is, like, so fucking cool that this, like, teenage girl gets to be in all the war councils. I don't know what they do in war councils, but I'm assuming it's, like, you know, in, like, sports movies where the football coach has, like, the X's and O's on the board and is drawing lines everywhere. She gets to do that. She gets to tell the football team. pushing those pieces around the big map. (laughs) With the little flags on them. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> gets to put the little flags in the map <laughs> so cute this is a movie that I have in my head um, so the English expected the French to try to retake one of these high profile cities they're expecting that the French will probably want to retake Paris or Normandy since they were much closer to where the army was stationed But Joan is like, no, no, no. If we get the Dauphin Charles crowned king, that will give us the sort of like morale boost and power and support that we need to finally get the English out of our country. So in order to do that, we have to clear a path to Rez. So she gets permission to take back all the English controlled bridges on the road along the way. And the English don't expect it because they have all their forces at Paris and Normandy. So it's like, this girl's a genius. So during one of these little battles, Joan saves the life of a duke by warning him of a cannon that was going to fire at him. During the same battle, she's also hit in the head by a stone. (laughs) But she recovers, like she shakes it off and she's fine. So the army keeps marching toward Rez. Rez. Anyway, no. A lot of these little towns they retake along the way accept the return to French allegiance without much of a fight. And they the little towns are just like, yeah, fine, cool, we're French again. Like <laughs> it doesn't affect me. I still have to like weed my garden. Pay taxes. <laughs> pay taxes. Pay an exorbitant amount of taxes to one monarch <laughs> or another. <laughs> So, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, in July 1429, Charles VII's coronation takes place. Yay. They pull it off. Soon after that, Joan and the French army set out to reclaim Paris. And the siege lasts a few months. It's unsuccessful. Most likely because some of the nobles had convinced Charles to wait to attack Paris which gave the English time to regroup. That was a bad idea. And Joan had been like, we got to go now. We got to go now while they're still recovering. But they didn't listen to her. 
So during the battle, Joan is wounded in the leg by a crossbow bolt, but she recovers. The following day, September 8th, the French army receives a royal order to withdraw. Even though they failed, the army continues to lay siege to French cities to reclaim them, just not Paris, and Joan has success in several more campaigns. In December, Charles makes her and her family members of the French nobility. So these little farmers get to be nobles now, which is cute. Um, After that, there's a brief truce between France and England. So Joan is super bored. (laughs) She's like a noblewoman now. And she's, like, led charges in war. She's, like, seen the country. So now she's supposed to, like, go back to her father's farm and, like, pick carrots or something. Like, what? So she decides she's going to, like, stir the pot a little. (laughs) Which I love. I love the impulse. Love to see it. And she writes a couple strongly worded letters. Or I guess she dictates a couple strongly worded letters because she's illiterate. (laughs) So she sends a letter to the Hussites, which were a group of Czechs who had broken with the church in Bohemia. She says in the letter, quote, remove your madness and foul superstition, taking away either your heresy or your lives. And she actually tries to get the English army to leave France with her and go fight the Hussites. But they're like... (laughs) No thanks. <laughs> Not interested. Mind your own business. She's, she's like addicted to chaos at this point. But then in May, the truce with England is broken and Joan gets to go back to war. She goes to Compiègne. Ayo, throwback to episode one. Compiègne is being attacked by the English, so she fights in that battle, but she doesn't lead the charge. She stays with the rear guard. And during the battle, the rear guard is surrounded by the Burgundians and forced to surrender, and Joan is captured. She's imprisoned in Beaurevoir Castle in northern France. She makes several escape attempts, including jumping from her 70-foot window. (laughs) Wasn't injured at all. (laughs) She jumped right out, got up and walked away. Like, what? Um, I think she fell in a dry moat, which, like, dry? Holy. (laughs) Um, She keeps trying to escape, and they eventually send her to the Burgundian town of, I'm just going to say Arras. I'm sure that's not right. Then the English negotiate with the Burgundians to get her transferred to their custody, and she's moved to Rouen. When she's there, the Armagnacs launch several campaigns against the English in Rouen to try to free her, but they're unsuccessful, and Charles is super pissed. He vows to exact vengeance upon the English troops and upon English women, he says that. He says he's going to exact vengeance on English women, which, like, yikes. Um, So that's how mad he is. So... Let's talk about Joan's trial. It's kind of cool in a lot of ways, one of which being the fact that the record of it even exists. It was recorded in English and French during each daily session. Four years later, it was translated into Latin and five copies were produced, three of which are still in existence. 
Later on in the 1450s, the participants in the trial, sorry, I had to burp. (laughs) The participants in the trial were investigated and interviewed, and those transcripts still exist. So we have like a ton of primary information about it. So the trial took place from January 9th, 1431 to May 28th of the same year. And there were a couple different phases of it. This is like the episode of phases. I don't know. I've said the word phase like 16 times so far. First, there was the preliminary inquiry, which was an investigation of Joan's character and habits. During this phase, she was examined and determined to be a virgin, which like is kind of gross. But I was thinking about it and I was like, she's really, really lucky (laughs) because as we know (laughs) that thing can be broken by other things than a than a than a you know like Mm -hmm. it can be broken from riding a horse and she did a lot of that so like actually she got pretty lucky there Mm -hmm. um yeah so Good good news. They also sent officials to her hometown to question people there about her, which in my opinion is like a bit much, like it's kind of stalkerish. One man who was sent to question people said that he, quote, had found nothing concerning Joan that he would not have liked to find about his own sister. So there's nothing against her character that they can find. The main inquisitor, who is the Bishop Pierre Cauchon, does not like this. So he he desperately wants Joan to be guilty so that the Anglo-Burgundians can go ahead and get rid of her, get rid of this like symbol of hope for the French army. So that's the first phase. The next phase of the trial is the interrogation, which starts on February 21st. On the first day, the uh, the bishop asks Joan to swear that she's going to tell the truth throughout the whole interrogation. She replies, quote, concerning my father and my mother and what I have done since I took the road to France, I will gladly swear to tell the truth. But concerning my revelations from God, these I have never told or revealed to anyone, save only to Charles, my king, and I will not reveal them to save my head. So she's like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) So this becomes like a big point of contention throughout the rest of the trial, The bishop keeps trying to get her to swear this oath that she will be completely true about everything. And she's like, basically, in like more eloquent terms, she's like, fuck you. It's none of your business. So so like, imagine being on trial and the prosecutor's like, what were you doing on the night of blah, blah, blah? And you're just like, go to hell. (laughs) It's like, no, Joan, you don't understand. This is not how trial works. (laughs) fucking watch me i just love the absolute audacity to be like fuck you you have no right to ask me that question (sighs) love it so the bishop also on that first day the bishop tells her to recite the our father and she says she will but only if she's allowed to go to confession she's negotiating all the time throughout her trial she's like i'll do this if i can do this um So that's the first day of the trial. And most of the days go like exactly like that. And the full transcript is like 300 pages. So I just, yeah, I'll just like pick out some highlights. 
So in the third session on February 24th, the bishop asks Joan, quote, do you know whether you are in God's grace? And Joan, I thought you were going to say, do you know the muffin man? <laughs> the bishop asks Joan, do you know the muffin man? And Joan says, the muffin man? And the bishop goes, the muffin man. <laughs> and Joan goes, who lives on Drury Lane? <laughs> I took it too far. <laughs> That's so funny to imagine. Um, My bad. Continue. No, it's go- it's fine. Um, Joan, yeah. So the bishop asks her if she knows whether or not she's in the state a state of grace, and Joan uh, replies, "If I am not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in His grace." I bring this part up because it's like a theological trick that he's trying to play on her. No human being can possibly know whether or not they're in a state of grace. Only God knows. So she can't say that she is. But if she says she's not, then she could fall into a whole nother trap. So Mm -hmm. she says, if I'm not, may he put me there. And if I am, keep me there. Genius response. In some of the sessions, they ask her if she possesses any objects or substances related to witchcraft, which she denies. They ask her all about her visions, like how she knows they're the specific saints that she says they are. She says they introduce themselves to her. She's like, uh, duh, they told me. And then they ask her why she's tried to escape so many times. And she says that escape attempts are the right of every prisoner. (laughs) I love I love it so much. She's like, it is my legal duty to escape, sir. <laughs> in March, the interrogation becomes a bit more private and it takes place in Joan's prison cell. The bishop asks her whether or not her voices have ever failed her, like led her astray. And she says no. He's like, well, you're a prisoner, so like haven't they sort of led you astray? And she responds that since the voices allowed her to be captured, then it must be God's will. In mid-March, the questioning turns to the subject of Joan's cross-dressing, wearing men's clothes. The bishop asks her, why are you doing this? And she says that she was instructed to do it by her voices and that she has done everything the voices tell her to do. Then the bishop asks her, why Why does she think the angels and saints would choose someone like her for a mission like this? And she replied that, quote, it pleased God to do so by a simple maid to drive back the king's armies. I just liked that part. So in the session that took place on Wednesday, March 14th, Joan gave a famous warning to the bishop and said, quote, you say that you are my judge. I do not know if you are, but take good heed not to judge me ill, because you would put yourself in great peril. And I warn you so that if God punish you for it, I shall have done my duty in telling you. So she's like, not only will she not answer questions and like refuses to participate, like she is threatening (laughs) the judge. Just imagine this witness on the stand just like, fuck you and fuck you too. 
<sighs> You're going to hell if you find me guilty. Knowing that this woman had jumped like 70 foot out of a window before, it's like, I don't feel like we should fuck with her. Can we just let her go? <laughs> and just like walked away totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it would have been it would have been smart to just uh, let her go. The bishop does not care for that warning. Joan also says during that session that St. Catherine has visited her and told her not to worry about becoming a martyr and to have no fear of bodily injury. So she's like, come at me, bro. Like, even if you win, you're going to lose. I'm not afraid of you. Joan is questioned whether or not she believes that she is in a state of mortal sin. Again, trying to trick her. She replies that she doesn't know, but she believes that if she were in a state of mortal sin, that her voices would have abandoned her. So as the trial progresses, the charges against Joan are as follows. That she was part of an attack on Paris that took place on a feast day, which is a no-no. That she wore men's clothing. That she jumped from the tower of <laughs> Beaurevoir Castle. <laughs> And that she stole a horse. <laughs> my favorite one is the horse thing, because she's like, no, I sent the guy the money. It's not my fault if he didn't get it. <laughs> so she denies stealing the horse, and she consistently replies that the other charges are not sins because they were all the will of God who spoke through the voices of the saints. Throughout the trial, Joan also repeatedly attempts to convince the Inquisitors to allow her to hear Mass. On Thursday, March 15th, she says, Promise me that I'll get to hear Mass if I wear women's clothing. The interrogator says, I promise that you will hear Mass if you wear women's clothing. And she replies, And what do you say if I've promised our king and sworn not to remove these clothes? Nonetheless, I say, make me a long robe that touches the ground with no train and give it to me for mass. Then when I come back, I'll put back on these clothes I'm wearing. So she really does not want to give up. It's like a tunic. It's like pants and shirt, and you can tie them together. Um, and there's a reason beyond just what the voices have ordered her to do. She doesn't want to get raped by an English guard. It would be much easier to rape someone who's wearing a dress than a tunic that ties. And the English guards have attempted to rape her multiple times. In response, they accuse her of being a witch some more. <laughs> Not sure how it's relevant. <laughs> they ask if she has any mandrakes. She's like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I'm just here in my tunic. What the fuck are you talking about? She's like, stop changing the subject. Um, they ask her if she's ever been in contact with fairies. Um, they ask her what the significance of her ring that she wears is, because they're arguing that um, someone saw her before like a charge in battle, sort of like looking at her ring. <laughs> I don't know. They think it's some witchy thing. And they also ask her about the banner that she held during battle. Why are you so obsessed with that banner? It must have some weird magical properties. She denies all the witchy stuff and she says that her ring and banner are just symbols and she used them according to the saint's instructions. So now the interrogation part of the trial is over. And starting on March 26th, the inquisitors read all of her charges 
Um, and if she doesn't answer to the charges, she will be found guilty and her punishment will be to burn at the stake. And on May 24th, after hearing and responding to the charges, like they made her sign this document, basically. Just like sign your name on this document. She couldn't read. Anyway, it's really long. So this is just an excerpt. Quote, I, Jean, commonly called the maid, a miserable sinner, after that I had recognized the snares of, of error in which I was held, and after that, by the grace of God, I had returned to our Holy Mother Church, in order that it may be seen that, not pretending, but with a good heart and good will, I have returned thereto. I confess that I have most grievously sinned in pretending untruthfully to have had revelations and apparitions from God, from the angels, and St. Catherine and St. Margaret." She says she lied about everything. She apologizes for wearing men's clothes, for going to battle, all of the above. She's like, I'm a sinner. And the bishop is like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you admitted to everything. Welcome back to the church, because now you're not excommunicated anymore. Four days after that, so on May 28th, she takes it all back. She puts back on her tunic again, and she recants that previous statement. She's like, St. Catherine and St. Margaret came to me. They told me I had to take it back. And guess what? I'm not afraid to die. And the inquisitors accuse her of relapsing into heresy, which is the only way that she can be executed. So it was So she's confessing to, like, recanting this stuff, and, like, she can't read what it actually says. Anyway, um, they declare unanimously that she must be handed over to the secular authorities who decide that she has to be burned at the stake. So two days later, on the morning of May 30th, Joan gets permission to make her confession and to receive communion, which actually the bishop wasn't required to allow because she was excommunicated, but he allowed it. Then she was led by two Dominicans to the old marketplace in Rouen. The inquisitors gave one more sermon, which I bet was super boring. And they read her sentence that they were abandoning her to the secular authorities. There was a huge crowd there, but it was like unusually solemn. People weren't cheering and like drinking beer and stuff. I mean, it's like a teenage girl. (laughs) It's awkward. Um, Anyway, after that, the pyre is lit, and Joan asks one of the Dominicans to hold a crucifix up high so that she can see it above the flames, which he does, and and he consoles her while she burns to death. So there are no verified primary relics of Joan of Arc. Um... Legend says that her heart and her intestines wouldn't burn and that the authorities eventually threw them into the Seine with the rest of her ashes. So we don't have any relics. There were a couple secondary relics, um, but they have been either just lost to the ages or actually destroyed during the French Revolution, which fucking sucks. So the Hundred Years' War continued for 22 years after Joan's death. Charles VII retained his legitimacy as the King of France. Before England could regain some of its power, it lost its alliance with Burgundy. So that, combined with the French army's tactics that they learned from Joan, led to France's victory. 
When Charles and the French army retook Rouen in 1450, Charles ordered an inquiry into Joan's trial. He was still really upset about the whole situation. So in 1456, the guilty verdict was overturned and the rehabilitation proceedings began. All the inquisitors were questioned. Witnesses of her death were questioned. Basically, the inquisitors were like, yeah, we really fucked up. And the witnesses were like, yeah, they really fucked up. (laughs) Um, She shouldn't have been executed. So Joan was canonized by Pope Benedict XV in 1920. Her feast day is May 30th. In 1920, the French government declared an annual festival in her honor held on the second Sunday in May, which in the United States, that's our Mother's Day, which I kind of like. If anyone's interested in watching some kind of adaptation of the trial of Joan of Arc, there are obviously like dozens of adaptations, but the one I would recommend the most highly is the 1928 silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. It literally changed my life. No joke. Anyway, that's Joan of Arc, the maid of Orléans. She was a cool lady. Yeah, she was. I'm imagining being a soldier, though, just, like, fighting all this, and this, like, teenager shows up, and she's just, like, tapping on everybody's armor, trying to get attention. She's like, I have been sent by God. You must take me where I go. Yeah. You're like, fuck. little lady. It's Joan again. You're, like, (laughs) so sick of her. Fucking Joan. Ugh. I could see why they didn't want to listen to her. She's, like, their little sister or something. You're like, you can't come in my room. Lugging a sword around. She doesn't know how to use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it keeps falling off the horse. (laughs) (laughs) God sent this girl. Right. (laughs) It's kind of like Mulan when she goes to the the camp and just like fucking everything up and like starting fights accidentally. (laughs) (laughs) Good God have sent like. I don't know, a 37-year-old really buff man. Right. The Hulk or something. (laughs) But no. But you get teenage girl. And her just launching herself out of the window. Like, what did she do? Did she just look down? She's like, if I got a running start. She's like, I could do it. I got this. (laughs) And she did. She did have it. I'm ready. This this is all fucking over the place. Uh, I'm not really talking about a witch or witches or anything today. I'm just going to be talking about heresy and like the medieval period. Okay. Um, Because you kind of touched on it a little bit and I've touched on it before. um, But like witchcraft wasn't really like a prosecutable like charge to start out with. Like heresy was like the loophole for how you prosecuted witches. Yeah. It's a loophole for how you prosecuted everybody. Joan's wearing men's clothes. Uh, like, let's just loop it in there to heresy somehow. And Yeah. Anyway, um, back in the medieval time period, witchcraft is not like the number one thing that the church is worried about at all. Um, for centuries, the church debated whether they could believe in witches and if they could, how could they believe in witches without diminishing the power of God? Mm. Um, I've talked about texts before, like the Canon Episcopy, which said that witches were like these poor, unfortunate bastards, pretty much held in the sway of delusions caused by Satan. 
um, and that they're they're harmless except for the fact that like delusion can spread and that delusion can gain followers and that's why you need to contain that kind of stuff um okay those beliefs continued to develop they were debated they were philosophized by a lot of different people in the church until the church believed that witches could influence and harm the material world, but they could only do it with the help of demons and Satan. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of their loophole to be able to prosecute witches. Okay. Um, the church did believe in the supernatural, does believe in the supernatural. They have to. Things like the miracles are put in that realm. Um, but you kind of have to draw a line through the supernatural and through magic. So there's like good versus bad, uh, good magic, white magic. It might include things like using herbs to cure people um, because you can make the argument that like God made the earth and he made the herbs. So if mm. you're using the herbs, you're relying on the power of God. So yeah. Using the herbs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> self-care i'd like to use some herbs <laughs> <laughs> you're drawing on the power of god sarah amen <laughs> <laughs> uh but influencing others harming them through things like love potions curses etc they decided that that could only be achieved by communicating with and or drawing on the power of demons and satan Mm. So that was the line that they drew that there's like good supernatural and there's bad supernatural. And we don't care about like the folk healers out there who are doing doing the good stuff. Uh, We just, we care about the dumbasses that are fucking around with like Satan and things. Okay. This is a very important distinction because messing around with demons and Satan constitutes heresy. So if they can, you know, say that it's dark magic, black magic, then it's demons, then it's heresy, and then they can legally prosecute that. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of legal bullshit. Like, the, I want to spend so much time on all, like, the philosophizing they did about everything, because it really was, like, everybody's sitting down, like, well, we do believe in magic, kind of, because of, like, Jesus coming back, and, like, miracles (laughs) and shit, so, like, where do we draw the line between this and witchcraft? Mm -hmm. It was, it's really funny to read. Um... Heresy was something the church was fighting a war against in this early medieval period. Um, They were terrified of it because it threatened their authority, stability, and longevity. I mean, they haven't been established for a terribly long amount of time. Um, There are alternate religions and practices and beliefs out there, and there are so many sects of Christianity out there right now. Um, But if the Christian if the Catholic church can brand each of them that they find problematic, heretical, Mm. then they have a legitimate reason to bump them off or silence them or to label them as dangerous. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, could you imagine being back in like the olden days with the Catholic church though, when everybody is like doing their own version of Christianity, like there's gotta be so many versions of Christianity. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Catholic Church is like, no, <laughs> this is the only one. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah. 
then she told me that hoop earrings were her thing and that I wasn't allowed to wear them anymore. (laughs) And then for Hanukkah, my parents got me this really expensive pair of white gold hoops and I had to pretend like I didn't even like them. (laughs) So sad. (laughs) Are you telling me that the Catholic Church is Regina George? Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. My research said that predominantly the Catholic Church was dealing with heretics on like an individual level. So that guy over there in that one town, this dude over here, that woman over there, like these isolated cases, Mm -hmm. um, that changed when they encountered a Christian sect that existed in southern France known as the Cathars. Mm, I've heard of them. They're a widespread veritable cult waging war against the church and what it preaches and they're perverting the bible into this dualistic masterpiece Hmm. like i'm I'm gonna talk about what they believe but like it's fucking cool okay so anyway the first medieval inquisition um because there's like a couple of them like strung together but the first one is the episcopal inquisition and it was established in 1184 by pope lucius the third um the Episcopal Inquisition had its issues. I'm not going to get into them, but like it was new. There were holes, problems. Um, so later they established the Papal Inquisition, which is still part of the Medieval Inquisition. Um, but the Episcopal Inquisition was almost a direct response to the growth of the Cathari. Okay. This was the first time the church really saw that heretics could kind of come together to form these cults and that they could grow into mass numbers and indoctrinate so many people like the Cathars spanned different countries. They were being protected by nobility. Mm. People in the nobility were members of the Cathars. Mm. So the matter of the Cathars like set the mood for future heretic and witch persecution because like no longer was it really a matter of one isolated heretic or witch or sorcerer. The church now had to worry about these massive dangerous cults out there in society. And if they did just find one isolated person, they had to really, really be sure that it was just one person. Yeah. Okay. Which was, why the Inquisition was such a big deal, questioning people and torturing people so hardcore. Um, The Cathars, though, to pause and explain more about what they believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus Christ, like, it's a fucking trip, what they believe. (laughs) Okay. It's like the... You have you had a kid in your workshop who takes your story and just like runs away with it for the workshop and you're just kind of sitting there like listening to mm. however the fuck they interpreted this. I'm the person that does that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm you like, are the cathars. <laughs> I'm like, what if everybody was gay? <laughs> and what if there was a monster? <laughs> They're like, no. <laughs> uh yikes. Yikes. Nope. Mm-mm. So you were the Cathars in this situation. Okay. The Cathars have been around essentially since like the second crusade. And they believe that God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament are two different gods. Okay. On the surface, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
the God of the Old Testament is like this evil demiurge, Satan, who created the world and humanity. Therefore, all of the material world and anything to do with like our fleshly bodies is evil. The God of the New Testament created the spirit and the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. And it's the duty of the Cathars through faith to overcome like the evil prison of the world and of their bodies so that their good spirits return to the spiritual world and the good God. Okay. Like I read it and I'm like, talk about like running away, like with your own interpretation of the Bible. It's a little intense. But there is this New Testament kind of like similar thing where it's like you have to deny the flesh in order to appease the spirit. So, okay, what what else do they believe? Does it get weirder? Okay, so if they like fuck up through the whole faith process and they can't like overcome like the the material world in their bodies, (laughs) um, they get reincarnated, actually. Yes, and they get shoved into another like flesh prison hell suit and have to do everything all over again. Mm. Um, And I wrote, naughty souls go back to the flesh prison. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is why I don't write notes at 3 a.m. That's the title. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so reincarnation. That's weird. Okay. Yep. If you fuck up on the road to salvation, you get reincarnated. Because um, it's just constant punishment being here, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that they think as the result of the world being like pure evil is um, like procreation is evil. Because why would you continue to imprison innocent souls in fleshly bodies on the material world? Like, that's extremely selfish of you to do. <laughs> so they hope that the human race dies out. <laughs> they want, like, everybody to transcend off of this earth and essentially go back to the spirit world. Okay. Um and procreation is one reason that, like, them and the Catholic Church really don't get along. The Catholic Church is out there, like, be fruitful, multiply. Mm-hmm. And they're like, the church is a voice for the satanic demiurge. They want everybody trapped on earth. Oh, it's man. Like, Okie dokie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But it, like, it, if you have a religion that you want to spread, I feel like the best way to do it is not by discouraging people to have kids and form the next generation of your religion. <laughs> like It's really weird how they did things. They have like the special baptism. And once you go through it, you have to be a very specific kind of like, but you achieve that level and you're called a perfect. Like Ooh. that's what that level is called a perfect because Whoa. like once you die, you get to go back to like, the spiritual world so they definitely held themselves in like very high regard wow that's cool though um other things they hate the cross because they just see it as an instrument of torture that's but it. wait but wouldn't they like that because they hate their bodies like wouldn't they want anyway i don't know i'm confused about the symbolism <laughs> And they do believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he had a physical human body. They think that Mm. he was like pure spirit, which is problematic because then it's never like a combination of like God and man. 
Um, he's just pure spirit all the time. Um, yeah. And I think that there's some of the Cathars who think that Mary might have been like spirit too. She also wasn't human. So. <laughs> yeah. But like, there's like evidence that they were actually real, but okay. <laughs> okay. It's yeah, cool. So they have a lot of interesting beliefs though. Like they really did take the Bible and they just fucking ran with it. Um, <laughs> Fanfic. Yep, and then they made a cult out of it. Mm. Um, anyway, about 24 years after the creation of the Episcopal Inquisition, Pope Innocent III has kind of had it with these stupid fuckers. Um, he sends missionaries to tell local authorities to stop harboring these guys. Mm. Um, one guy, Count Raymond the Sixth of Toulouse, is like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> like I don't I don't give a shit like the Cathars are fine with me mm. we're buddies Uh-oh. Um, so the Pope sends a legate to excommunicate Raymond on the way back from excommunicating Raymond the legate is murdered oh yeah presumably by Raymond's people yeah wow so and, they had like real power mm-hmm. so um, the Pope is like 100% now like fuck this like, I, I wanted the cult gone. Now my papal legate is dead. Um, legate, legate. I don't know how the fuck you say that word. Um, I don't know either. I always see it on paper, but I, I've never heard it said out loud. <laughs> I think it's legate, but it sounds dumb as fuck. Um, legate. So, legate. <laughs> like, legate just sounds better. Like, legate, legal. I don't mm. know. <sighs> don't at me. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna harass you on Twitter for it. <laughs> anyway, the next year in 1209 time period, we're in the Albigensian or Albigensian. I've mm-hmm. heard it two different ways. Crusade is launched to get rid of the Cathars once and for all. So if you ever see that crusade, it just means like the crusade against the Cathars. It was like another name for them. Okay. Um, The Pope writes to the King of France at the time and asks him to deal with the situation. And the King spares some men to deal with it. He's like, well, I can't fight in the crusade and my son can't fight in the crusade, but I have some people I could send. So Mm. he sends some people. They do battle with the Cathars for a while. And in July of 1209, they end up at the city of Bézier. And this is another Cathari stronghold. Mm. Um, this is the guy that I can't say his name with the correct accent, like at all. <laughs> so it's Abbot Arnaud Armory. I'm not even going to attempt to say that with the French pronunciation. Um, it's f- cursive as far as I'm mm. concerned. Mm-hmm. Verbal cursive. Um, this abbot grants the Catholics in the city permission to leave. Um, but they stay to fight with the Cathars. They're like, no, no, we're buddies. We get along, whatever. Um, so the abbot gives the order to have the city slaughtered anyway. Well, when asked, sir, how will we tell the Catholics from the Cathari so that we can spare the Catholics? The abbot says verbatim, except it's in French, kill them all. The Lord will recognize his own. Ouch. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
it's so fucking harsh. <laughs> you're the two soldiers and you're both like, oh my God, he's crazy. It's like, do we do we paraphrase for the other guys or do we just <laughs> <laughs> keep it to ourselves? Well, the abbot said he didn't give a fuck, so just kill everybody. Anyway, they murder somewhere between 5,000 and 20,000 people in the city. Wow. There's no accurate estimate because 5,000 is closer to, like, the actual population of Bezier, but they had a lot of, like, refugees and stuff in the city, so there's no way to accurately know like, mm. how many people were there. But they just fucking slaughter this city. Wow. Um, the Cathari continue to be persecuted and killed on Friday the 13th in May 1239. The Inquisition burns a slew of them. And again in March 1244, they besiege a Cathari stronghold and burn hundreds more of them. Eventually, they kind of just squash like most of the faith. You're just yeah. going around burning hundreds of them at a time. And people are like, eh, maybe we just won't be Cathars anymore. Yeah, maybe I'll switch it up. <laughs> wow fun fact though that i didn't even anticipate running into this during my research but there was a group of women in the 1960s in bath which i think is in england um who all claimed that they were reincarnated cathari they all went the 60s the 1960s the 1960s whoa yeah, they all went to this psychologist individually with specific and fascinating details of their lives and deaths as Cathari in the 13th century. Whoa. I watched an episode of a show that debunks it, unfortunately. Aww. But it's so fucking cool. Like, regardless of the fact that, like, it can be debunked, just listening to, like, all of this reincarnation stuff and the fact that it was not one person, but a group of people going mm-hmm. to the psychologist. Yeah, that's really cool. So they had, like, specific details about it? hmm Essentially, the way that it ends up being debunked um, is that this psychologist just so happened to be like a guy who knows everything about the cathars (laughs) so whenever they started like explaining things to him he's like hmm this sounds like the cathars Mm. um and it was said that they like came up with a lot of very specific names um from this time period and these are names that you can find in old inquisition records but they're only in the inquisition records and they're only in like the building that houses those Mm. But if you go actually read, like, his diaries of his sessions with them, they're just describing people and he's assigning the names to them. Oh, I see. So once you get into, like, his actual notes, you find out that, like, he's the expert in the Cathari and he's the (laughs) one who's assigning all of the names and info to them. Okay, I see. Hmm. But it doesn't seem like it was intentional on the women's parts at all. And, I mean, it sounds fascinating if all of them still had, like, reincarnation experiences in general. Right. That is cool. Yeah. Anyway, it was fascinating. Um, The church pulls, like, this same kind of shit with a Christian sect called the Waldensians. Mm. The Waldenses or the Vaudois because they lived in the Vaud region, but they also lived in France and Italy. Been trying to keep it kind of localized to France um, Mm -hmm. so that I stay kind of on topic for today. (laughs) Kind of. 
Anyway, the Waldensians, they're this proto-Protestant group that believes in, I did not look up how to say this, I'm just going to fucking go for it, apostolic poverty, like apostles. Yeah, apostolic. Um, Apostolic? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I have that kind of like Chicago accent, apostolic, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have literally never come across the word before, but I'm like, I I recognize what it means. So Mm -hmm. apostolic poverty, Um, give away like all of your shit, be super poor. That's like the road to salvation and perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, They also believe things like relics are completely meaningless. They're like, they're just bones and shit. They don't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) They think holy water is also meaningless. They're like, you could do the same shit with rainwater. Like it doesn't fucking make a difference. Wow. Um, They're haters. (laughs) (laughs) They think pilgrimages just exist so people can spend money to travel places. What's wrong with that? (laughs) I would like to know. <laughs> and then uh, one of their final thoughts is the papacy is the Antichrist of Rome. <laughs> mm, heard that one before. That's an old, <laughs> old classic. <laughs> anyway, it's all super chill stuff that the Catholic Church can totally let go. Mm, mm-hmm. No, not really. No. Heretics, every single one of them. Um they don't succeed in wiping out the Waldensians, but they try really, really hard to wipe out the Waldensians. What's interesting is that the Waldensians start getting prosecuted for witchcraft brand heresy. Ooh. Kramer, the inquisitor who wrote the Malleus Maleficarum, that sexist douchebag, mm-hmm. um, he wrote extensively about how the two biggest heretical threats to the church were witches and the Waldensians specifically names the two of them and writes extensively about them. Other people read this and accidentally conflate the two. (laughs) So they start ringing sorcery confessions out of the Waldensians, and suddenly they're putting Waldensians on trial for witchcraft. And so the way that Kramer explained it, I forget, I read like a fucking 50 page manuscript on this and it's all gone out of my head now, but witches were doing like the actual acts of evil and Waldensians were spreading like the doctrines of evil. So it was a way to kind of justify his sexism and that witches are women and they do evil stuff and like heretics are men and they just spread like doctrines and stuff that are evil. Okay. Um, But other people read this and they're just like, they just smushed them together. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate for both groups. <laughs> yes, it is. Very unfortunate. So they put a lot of Waldensians on trial for witchcraft. Um, the first drawing, this is really cool. The first drawing we actually have of a witch on a broom is a doodle in the margins of Le Champion des Dames in 1451. And the witches are labeled Vaudois or Waldensians. Whoa. The very first drawings we have of witches on brooms, they're called Waldensians. That's really cool. I never knew any of this. It's so cool. Vaudois became another term for witch, heretic, sorcerer. And some scholars even suggest that there's an etymological link between Vaudois and voodoo. What? Yeah. That's really cool. I love etymology. I love it so much. I have to think about that. My mind is like blown. It's really cool, but I think it's fascinating that 
like heretics, Christian heretics especially, are important to the witch and magic mythology because of how often things in history get conflated and co-opted. Mm. Fascinating. Side yeah. note that Pope Francis actually went to one of the Waldensian churches in 2015, and he apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church for persecuting them. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, he's like we suck i'm sorry listen we were young we were like a teenager just wiping people out super angsty of us whoops (laughs) whoops but yeah i think he's the only pope to have ever gone to a waldensian church cool cool dude i enjoy him Mm -hmm. um anyway any way, any who, try to say those at the same time. Any um, way. <laughs> <laughs> any way. <laughs> it's called French. It's called the French language. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> French oh. hate us so much. I'm sure they do. Mm-hmm. There's a third group I really want to talk about when it comes to heresy, and that's the Knights Templar which I mentioned to you Mm. in text. I'm not going to get super deep into who they are, where they are, what they did, blah, 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 because I'm not a historian and that's not what I'm focusing on. Um, But I got to talk about what happens to them as a result of French King and all around douchebag, Philip the fourth. Okay. So the Knights, these guys are created back in the time of the crusades because as we have discussed many times on the show, highways in them olden days were super dangerous. Mm, those highwaymen and with their swords, they'll get you. <laughs> <laughs> it's especially dangerous in the Holy Land where people are fighting over who gets to own it, like, all of the time. Yeah. Um, this area is, like, a shit show in this time period, 100%. So these dudes see Christians who are pilgrimaging to the Holy Land get, like, they're getting murdered constantly every time they're making these journeys. And they're like, hey, we should do something about that. Mm. The powers that be are like, sure, go be monk knights or whatever, like, live your dreams. Um, There are only, like, nine of them to start with, and they rely on donations heavily to keep afloat. But Bernard of Clairvaux who later becomes a saint. I know that guy. them. Yeah. I'm like, I know I heard this name before when I started (laughs) reading about it. He was the mutual friend of Hildegard and St. Malachi. Oh, so all three. Yeah. All three of them lived at the same time. Well, he backs the Knights Templar and writes on their behalf. And he is almost like single-handedly the reason that their ranks and their wealth grows as people start seeing as them as like the Christian charity to start giving to. Mm-hmm. Um, so people donate to them. They get money, land, businesses, farms, vineyards, nobles, kids, an island. She's giving the whole fucking island. Yeah. He gave them a whole island. <laughs> nice. Um, and then the knights start fighting actually in the holy wars. So rather than just protecting the pilgrims, they start fighting in the wars. Mm. They were revered for that. Um, but they also became like this huge bank at the same time. Hmm. 
So pilgrims who are traveling can deposit their wealth with the Templars at one end of the journey and get a slip of credit and then go to the Templars at the other end of the journey and redeem that credit. Oh. And it makes them less attractive like on their travels because they have no personal belongings or anything with them. Yeah. But people say that it's like a precursor kind of to like checks and things. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's really cool. So the Templars, they end up managing a lot of businesses. And then also a lot of people work on their land and for their businesses because they own a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. What sucks for the Templars is that they completely lose their foothold in the Holy Land after a series of battles and retreats. Mm -hmm. And after that, they're not super favored because, I mean, like the whole reason that you were created and we gave you all of this money was like for this reason. It's like the definition of you had one job. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, whoops. (laughs) Our bad. Yeah. But I mean, there's still this large banking corporation of people. They're called one of the first multinational corporations. Um, They're this large banking corporation people put money into and owe money. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, because they done fucked up in the Holy War, rumors start circulating about the weird shit that must go on in Templar initiation ceremonies that are super secretive. um, Because why not kick them when they're down? Yeah. People say they're spitting on the cross in those ceremonies, worshiping a severed head called Baphomet, and having a lot of gay sex. Wow. They were just super jealous that they weren't invited. <laughs> like, they're having a grand old fucking time in there. Yeah, really, it's probably just like dudes playing chess or something. <laughs> uh, that's weird. It's really weird shit to accuse them. They're you know, praying over a severed head and they're fucking each other a lot. And it's like, okay, maybe some of them were, I mean, it's a big, big organization of men. Mm -hmm. Um, So perhaps. Yeah. Anywho, over in France is a guy named King Philip IV, who is going to become their worst fucking nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Background on Philip. His mother falls off a horse pregnant and dies when he's a kid. So his dad remarries. Mm -hmm. Philip is the second son of his father until his older brother dies of poisoning, of which his stepmother is a suspect. Awkward. Yeah, she escapes any arrest, but, you know, still highly suspected for the crime because they're thinking like bumping off like her stepkids so that her kids because she I think she just had like a son that year. Her kids are now the heirs. Yeah. Anyway, Philip kind of grows up idolizing his grandfather, Louis the Ninth, who was alive there at the end of the Albigensian Crusade and persecution. I mentioned Louis because he's the only French king to ever become a saint. And that's oh. largely because of Philip. And that is where we get the city of St. Louis. So, Oh, it was that guy. Yes, it okay. is named after, it's King Louis, but St. Louis. Mm-hmm. We, we done fucked up the French. <laughs> we don't understand how to say them French words. Not that St. Louis is in the South. 
I don't know. No, but I mean, come to fucking Illinois, we just pronounce French words however the fuck we feel like it. In Illinois, there are so many cities that are from other places that we've taken them and pronounced them wrong. Like Cairo, Illinois, or (laughs) El Paso, Illinois. Like, so (laughs) bad. El Dorado. El Dorado. (laughs) So bad. I wish I was joking. (laughs) Yeah. Don't ever assume you know how to say the name of anything in Illinois, because we probably decided it was wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm ignoring pretty much everything that Philip did in his reign, because I just don't fucking care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no offense, buddy. <laughs> I just don't give a shit. Um, okay. I want to focus on his relationship with the popes and how that connects to his relationship with the Templars. So, the first pope that I have to mention is Pope Boniface VIII. Okay, um, I know him. Yeah, Pope Boniface VIII, you brought up a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many episodes ago. Um, he and Philip fucking hate each other. Like, straight up hate each other's guts. In 1296, Philip imposes taxes on the clergy in, like, the area. Mm -hmm. Um, which pisses Boniface off. He's like, you can't tax my fucking priests. Yeah. Um, Surprise, surprise, that Boniface suddenly, the very next year, canonizes Philip's favorite grandpa. Um, I think it was probably a bargaining chip to, like, ease the tensions between the two of them. Because, like, they hate each other, and he's the only French king who was ever canonized, just all of a sudden. Right. In the middle of this feud. Um, and that's that's the only reason I can see it being done at all, because Boniface fucking hates Philip. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Presumably he does this to get Philip to lighten up. Red scholar saying the same thing. Philip does not, in fact, lighten the fuck up. Um, so Boniface signs his papal bull saying that kings have to obey him. Um, so Philip publicly burns the bull in Paris like a drama <laughs> queen. He just stands outside and like fucking sets it on fire. Nice. Um So Boniface excommunicates him. So Philip has the Pope kidnapped and beaten up. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's why we know, that's why we know Boniface. He's the Pope that got kidnapped and got the shit knocked out of him. Right. I knew that he got beat up, but I, I didn't know why. I didn't know the whole situation. There's this whole back and forth between him and Philip. So uh, like a month later, Boniface dies after Mm. he's, kidnapped and all this shit happens Mm -hmm. benedict the 11th i think that's what this roman numeral is benedict the 11th is elected next but he dies after like eight months and then who is elected pope next but a french archbishop philip likes who moves the papacy out of rome to avignon Avignon. yeah inside french rule yeah shit show so And then, this is kind of a fucking below-the-belt move, Um, Philip later tries to get Boniface posthumously convicted of heresy and sodomy. 
<laughs> what? But, okay. Yeah, they're like putting his dead body on trial and they're trying to get like knights to fight over it. Mm. And no one wants to like challenge the knights over this. So they're like, can we just put this matter to bed? Like, what the fuck does it matter if we charge the dead pope with heresy and sorry? Right. Yeah. Well, this is like the second time that Phillips tried to charge him with it. And now he's trying to charge his corpse. <laughs> right. Extra. Uh, yeah, Philip's a douche. Anyway, now that the now Philip has the former French Archbishop, now Pope Clement V in charge, um, Philip has been fighting a war against the English for a while. That's most of the bullshit of his life that I skipped. Um, but because of like all of his constant battling, he's actually in debt to the Templars and like their banking corporation. Um, but what is this? He hears rumors of them doing weird shit in their initiations. Mm. Rather than dispel it, he actually jumps on it and decides to use it to his advantage so that he can get out of having to pay all of the fucking debts that he owes them. Wow. On Friday the 13th, October 1307, he has hundreds of Templars arrested and tortured into admitting, like, all kinds of different heresy, like, uh, the having gay sex, the head of Baphomet, and generally, like, none of them can agree, like, what the Baphomet even is, like, ah, oh, it's this three-headed thing, actually, it's a mummified something, actually, it's a cat, and he's like... <laughs> These are legit confessions. Wow. They're like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) They're just making up shit. Wow. Yep. And whenever they get accused of, like, spitting on the cross and stuff, they're trying to split hairs. They're like, well, maybe I did spit on the cross, but I did it with my mind, not with my heart. So... Like, I did it with my body, but, like, my heart wasn't behind it, so I'm not actually committing, like, blasphemy Mm. or anything. Interesting. And some historians have postulated that that may have actually been a part of the initiation, but that they were teaching the Templars to be able to withstand, like, tortures from other people, to be able to do things like spit on the cross if they were forced to. Oh, hmm. and they're like, you got to be able to do it like with just your body and your mind and not with your heart so that you can stay in God's good graces, but still do what like your captors and your torturers want. Hmm. Interesting. So, some historians say that there's some truth to some of the, the things from the initiation. Either way, Philip's like, yeah, whatever. They're all fucking heretics. Um. He uses their forced confessions to burn them at the stake and then uses his influence over Clement V to pressure him into issuing a papable disbanding the Templars completely. Philip later burns the Grand Master of the Templars at the stake and the charges of the Templars range from heresy to sodomy, not unlike Boniface's charges. Right. Wow. Philip was just a messy bitch who loved drama. A <laughs> oh, messy bitch is definitely how I would describe him. <laughs> mm-hmm. That messy bitch. Um, 
I don't just mention the Templars because they're another case of heresy, but like the Waldensians, part of their story becomes part of the magic community, and specifically it's Baphomet, the idol that they were supposedly worshipping. So Baphomet is generally understood to be like a corruption of Muhammad, Muhammad. Um, I won't get into the etymology, but the link is there. You can go read like a lot of really old documents where they mention it and how it gets conjugated into like other things. Okay. Um, What's interesting is that in 1856, magician Eliphas Levi draws up his own version of Baphomet, the Sabbatic goat, which is a mixture of the more humanoid devil figure in the 15th century Tarot of Marseille and Benamjidet, an Egyptian like ram deity. Okay. So he like combined this figure from this really old tarot and this Egyptian ram deity, um, except he made it like a goat. And Levi's Baphomet becomes important to occultist Aleister Crowley. Mm. It becomes the inspiration for the Rider Waite devil card. And okay. then it becomes the official symbol for the Church of Satan as well. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. I just thought it was cool that like this, this Baphomet that like, you've got all of these Templars who are like, we have no idea what the fuck it is. And then- <laughs> and then suddenly it's so important to like an occultist it's part of like the most like standard tarot deck that we have Mm -hmm. um and it's a symbol for the church of satan so i mean yeah it's interesting yeah um anyway to conclude and to make this semi-relevant to anything that you said um (laughs) Philip's sons didn't really have sons. I think one of them had a son, but he died after like five days. Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, they didn't really have sons, it created a problem of succession, which was one of the Kickstarters for the Hundred Years' War. Because they couldn't figure out who the fuck to give the throne to. Hey. Yeah. Um, And as you mentioned, like not giving it to women and... I, I've read some stuff that they like they refuse to give thrones to women because they're like, well, if we put a woman on the throne, then like she has to marry a foreigner and then a foreigner is in charge of the throne. And right. that can't happen. It's like, why, why not just let the fucking woman be in charge then? Like, it's not an issue the other way around. Right. Yeah, that's fucking dumb. The French king has an Italian bride. Nobody fucking... Heirs, <laughs> right? Because the bride becomes like subsumed under the king, so like it it would work the opposite way for a woman theoretically. Which isn't that why Elizabeth the first was like the virgin queen, like she never got married. I just like her. Yeah, she knew where it was at. Just don't fuck with men. Reign for like forty some years and then say peace out yep Um, that's the way to do it um anyway that's where i'm ending this wandering lecture on heresy in the medieval period i learned a lot (laughs) i am not being sarcastic (laughs) 
I told you I was going to do a French witch and then I started looking into it and I couldn't find any info. Mm. So I kept trying to find like other info and all I kept finding was just random stuff on heresy. I'm like, God damn it. I'm going to be writing a fucking bullshit lecture again. (laughs) (laughs) I think it works because Joan of Arc was considered a heretic by the anglo-burgundians so i think it all connects like heresy and like you said they used heresy to prosecute people they thought were witches because that was the crime which was what happened to joan of arc like literally just cross-dressing they were like witchcraft (laughs) it's like no like anyone can put on pants (laughs) no god would stop you Sometimes God does stop me from getting my jeans over my ass, but <laughs> different story. <laughs> Witchcraft. <laughs> Witchcraft. Definitely not the 12 apple cider donuts I ate. <laughs> I learned a lot. I really did. I didn't know really anything at all about the Knights Templar, except that St. Bernard of Clairvaux helped them become a thing. Um they're so cool. I watched this documentary, I think it's called Lost Worlds or something, um, where they went and they showed that, like, the temple that they lived in still mm. exists in, like, Syria, but people have just built houses in it. So people are just casually, like, living where the Knights Templar did. Casually just living my dream. Wow. It's so fucking cool. I'm going to watch that, and you should watch the Joan of Arc movie. I shall. The 28 one. It's fucking good. I didn't know about the Waldensians either. Never heard of them. I, I had heard of them because I told you forever ago I digressed and got distracted and I read that big art book thing that I wasn't supposed to that was completely irrelevant to what I was talking about that week. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Waldensian picture was in there and I'm like, Oh, like, what the fuck is a Waldensian? I'm like, is it the people who drew this? Like, what the fuck is this? Um, Mm. And then I found out more about it. But yeah, but I didn't even bother to look into it more. I just saw two pictures of witches and like Waldensians. I'm like, cool. The fuck (laughs) is this? (laughs) Yeah. I remember you talking about that art book because you were talking about the Little Ice Age and why certain rivers in that book were frozen or whatever. It's such a cool art book. I think I might have it bookmarked somewhere on my phone, but I need to find it and show it to you because mm-hmm. like it's got like an article that runs like through it the whole way. It's like a hundred pages long and it's supplemented with like hundreds of pictures. Cool. I want to see it. I love picture books. <laughs> <laughs> love seeing weird shit from old people. <laughs> Amen. Except for this one time I was working at Giant City Lodge and I was doing housekeeping and an old guy answered the door in the nude. (laughs) On that day, I did not appreciate seeing weird shit from old people. (laughs) She's forever been scarred. That would be in my intrusive thoughts all the time. Hey, yep. Thanks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is. I wouldn't be able to look at an old person without thinking of it. It's tough. (laughs) Sure is tough. (laughs) 
<laughs> Old people don't give a shit. They're so funny. They just don't care anymore. They're so close to death. They're like, whatever. My grandpa changed his location on Facebook to the cemetery. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's his oh hometown God. now. It's listed as the cemetery. <laughs> wow. With the caption of like next stop. It's like Jesus Christ group. <laughs> is that the same guy who made the shit pie? Yes, it is. Oh, he sounds so funny. He's my mortician grandpa. Love it. Well, that's why he like doesn't care about death. He's like, come take me. It's hilarious. It's funny. I had a good time. So did I. I Heresy. Heresy. Burnings. Cults. Yeah. Douchey kings. Pants. (laughs) (laughs) Pants. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everybody, for listening, if you did listen. (laughs) What else? Anything else? Any announcements? (laughs) I don't think so. You know how to get a hold of us at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know that we put pictures on Instagram. Who knows what the fuck we'll put on Instagram. Is it Joan of Arc's pants? I mean. Could be. It could be. (laughs) (laughs) Is it. I try to think of another one and be clever, but I can't. Is it the prosecution of Boniface's dead corpse? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to see that. I hope somebody has drawn that. I really would like to see a corpse on trial. Yeah. Is there anything else? I don't think so. Um, so yeah, thanks again for listening. And as always, thanks be to God. Blessed be.